Happy people have lower rates of cardiovascular disease. They have stronger immune systems. They heal faster from injury. They live longer. They're more creative. They're better problem solvers. They're more altruistic. They're more likely to volunteer both their time and or their money. Money impacts our happiness, right? Because it's, it's basic human needs. Once we get past that point and then more money doesn't bring more happiness. And if you want to spend your money in a way to maximize your happiness, buying experiences or time are the two ways to do it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Conversation with Harpreet. My name is Harpreet Singh, and I know why you're watching this video. You know, because I always try to bring experts and professionals from various fields to talk on some specific topics so that we can together generate some more ideas and also try to live our life with more potential. Like that's why I'm really so much excited today because I have wonderful guests and she has done so much research on this particular topic, happiness, which I just love happiness. Like I always try to stay always happy or just not in the bad mood. So let me give her introduction. Like she is a two time TEDx speaker. She has done PhD from Western University in health science. She also named as one of top 100 health leaders by Optimize Magazine and one of top 20 under 40 by Business London Magazine. Also, like she's such a media person, like she like goes on a show, TV show such regularly, frequently, TV shows such as The Social, Breakfast Television and Morning Shows. Also, uh, she also like gives interviews on so many media news channels as well. We were just talking about that like just before. Like I also mentioned that she has done PhD. Her entire primary research is in health, happiness. So she always tried to like bring the latest evidence, health or health and tips so that we can live more happier, more healthier. You can see like I'm so much excited. Let's start our conversation. Like please welcome with me. Dr. Jillian Mandish. Dr. Jillian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Harpreet, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you today. Oh my God. Like I, like I mentioned, like before we start recording, like I so much excited to have you on the show, like, and this topic happiness, I always thought like, this is such a simple topic, but you have done such a major research. Like you have written an entire thesis on it. So there's really a lot, lot of things we can really talk about it. But before any of that, I really want to ask you is that like, you have done a lot of research, you have written thesis. Could you tell me about your childhood? Like, what, why are you so passionate about learning more and more about happiness? What motivates you to learn more about it? Mm, you know, this is actually a question I have been reflecting on lately. Um, because, you know, growing up, I didn't even know that a happiness researcher was a job, if I'm being totally honest, you know, I, I, I didn't know that you could even study happiness until about six years ago. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing that I do have has been consistent my entire life is I've always been passionate about health and wellness. And, you know, I really, I believe that, you know, in this beautiful, precious life that we have, don't we want to live the best possible life that we can? And so how do we do that? And I have always been fascinated by that question. You know, what can we do to turn the volume up on our life? What can we do to show up and live in the biggest, boldest way? Uh, you know, as opposed to the disease management model in health, for example, where it's when something's wrong, we fix it. What I'm more passionate about is what's going well and how do we amplify that? Yeah. And so my my passion for that led me to learn that happiness and health are highly correlated and we see in the data like when you compare happy people to unhappy people happy people have lower rates of cardiovascular disease they have stronger immune systems they heal faster from injury they live longer they're more creative they're better problem solvers they're more altruistic they're more likely to volunteer both their time and or their money so when when i learned all of that it really opened my eyes and i thought wow this is such a fascinating topic and so i wanted to learn more and then from a personal perspective the other piece of it is that i when i first started learning about that first of all when i learned that you could study happiness because i didn't know that for most of my adult life so far 
I thought, you know, I reflected on the question, Jillian, are you as happy as you possibly could be? And if I got really honest with myself, I thought, you know, no, like I think I could be happier. And so from that lens, I put on my research hat because what I'm really good at is research, What I love is research. And so I thought if I'm not as happy as I possibly could be, and I have research skills, why don't I use those research skills to try to figure out how to be happier? So from a personal perspective, from a, you know, health and wellness perspective, this is just a path that I am so grateful to be on, so thrilled to be on and uh, have learned so much uh, so far. And I'm so excited to see kind of where it goes from here. Um, thank you so much. But you've mentioned like, is it really do like happy person lives longer? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, what, yeah. What's the science behind that? Like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, of interesting data. Uh, one of the really big studies um, that's often cited around this is the Harvard study of adult development. And so they have a really big data set where they followed Harvard graduates and then population matched people for their entire lifespan. So mm -hmm. we can start to see some really interesting longitudinal data. So longitudinal is where you follow the same person over multiple time points, as opposed to other type of research where you go in, you observe something, and yeah. then that's the end of the study. So as we start to get longer data with bigger population sets, we can start to be more confident in, in some of the findings. And uh, so that, that's one of them. And I think when we, not only is the length of life, you know, really a piece of it, but it's also quality of life, right? If we live to 100 and we're really sick for 50 of those years, <laughs> versus if we live to 70 and yeah. our health yeah. and vital, like, what what would you choose right so there's two pieces there's longevity and there's also quality of life and what we see with happiness is that as compared to people that are less happy the happier people not only see an increase in the duration or the length of their life but also in the quality of their life and to me that's where where the secret sauce is because we don't want to just go through life right we want to live life we want to show up and, and have that quality of life as well amazing like isn't this amazing now you were mentioning this a question suddenly like came up in my mind is it really okay to like live happy all the time you think like is it all right or you you think like there's always a balance like if we are happy then we should always like experience some same level of trauma or sadness what do you think like can we always be a happy or in happy mindset mm, Harper, i love that you asked this question because I mean, in all honesty, when I, when I first started studying happiness, my goal from a personal perspective was I thought, I don't like feeling anxious. Yeah. I don't like feeling stressed. I don't like feeling sad. I don't like feeling down. So I want to get rid of all of those things and just be happy all the time. I thought that was going to be my life goal, figure out how to be happy all the time. And what I quickly learned is that's actually not the goal. And in fact, there is research that shows that people that kind of put on their blinders and their entire goal in life is to be happy. Like that's what they're striving for all the time. They, they put those blinders on, everything is under this sort of umbrella of figure out how to be happy all the time. Those people are actually less happy. And I thought, huh, why is that? But think about it. It's absolutely unrealistic to think that we can go through life and be happy all the time, yeah. right? In terms of healthy psychological functioning, you ask any psychologist, any psychotherapist, any psychiatrist, and they will tell you, no, that's not the point. Um, and we need that, that spectrum, that palette of human emotions. Um, that's part of the human experience. And so the goal is not to be happy all the time. What is possible though, is no matter how happy or unhappy we're feeling right now, we all have the capacity to be happier, to have more moments of joy, to turn up the volume on life. Like sometimes I think about the, like, remember those like black and white TVs and you had to like move the antennas to try to like, mm -hmm. and the picture was yeah. all blurry, right? I feel like that's kind of like how you could live life. A little bit blurry, not so crisp, not so clear, or you can go in, well, you can't go into a store right now, but sometimes when you go into like, you know, a an electronic store, you see like the 4K high definition mm -hmm. TVs yeah. that are sharp and the picture is clear and the colors are vibrant. To me, that view of the world, that high definition view is what happiness does. It allows you to go through life with more, more vibrancy, with more, more 
feeling alive with more appreciation, with more um, mindfulness. And so you, you have two choices. You can go through life like a robot or you can choose to practice and cultivate more happiness in your life. And when you do that, life looks like it's in HD. That, that's amazing concept. Like I'm thinking about it now, like, is it happiness like the same for everyone? You mentioned like the black and white TV and the HD TV, but there might be some people over there, like maybe their perception of happiness is just maybe staying that black and white. Or you think like his happiness different or uh, differs with the different people like or you think now like there's a level we can do things to reach that happiness level mm -hmm. you're absolutely right so there's a couple layers to this so yes happiness can be different for different people like what makes you happy heartbreak versus me mm. may be different there may be similarities there's often a lot of commonalities but we're all unique and different and so part of our happiness and what makes us happiness is is unique to us um what makes us happy throughout our lifespan changes right if you think about what made you happy when you were 16 it's probably different than uh, what yeah. makes you happy right now and and what will make you happy when you're 100. um even like cross-culturally you know our north american view of of happiness is very different than some of our friends around the world and so and even how we express happiness um you watch a football player at the Super Bowl who gets a touchdown and he's doing his like end zone dance. He's happy. Yeah. You see somebody leaving a meditation class and they're very peaceful and zen and they're happy. So how we express happiness uh, can vary. So this is where it's kind of interesting, even in terms of how we define happiness, right? Like you and I, and, and even you listening to our conversation right now, we may all have different definitions of happiness. We probably do. Um, they're probably similar, but different. And yeah. yet we didn't have to start our talk today defining what happiness is because it's, it's so universally understood and yet so uniquely individual that it's kind of this very interesting, um, very interesting concept to try to wrap our head around, right? It's definitely too, and you mentioned like it's definitely a different perspective, like to have a head around like what's the happiness. And I'm thinking about it now, like so much fascinated about this. Like, can you control that feeling of happiness, or you think like it just comes naturally from inside you? Just depends on the environment, what things you are watching, listening, or you think like no, you can actually control the let's say like if there's a die of happiness like you can control that radar like okay you are this but at the night like you really want to be happy or can you control that impact it's 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 very interesting when we think about it because there's different things that cause happiness that bring different levels so for example if if i um you know ordered some some dinner from uber eats and i ordered for dinner tonight and i ordered like this chocolate cake for dessert or like a tiramisu. I love tiramisu. To so say I order the tiramisu. The feeling I get when I eat that tiramisu feels good, right? And yet an hour later, I probably feel a little bit sluggish. I probably feel like I overate. I probably feel maybe a little bit tired. Um, so there, there's that level where we get that that burst, but it's not lasting and it's not deep. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, if I think of the day that I got my PhD my mom, my mom has a PhD as well. And so at, at Western, if your parents teach there, when you, when you walk across the stage, you kneel down and they, they hood you, they put like, it's part of the graduation ceremony. And so I remember walking across that stage the day I got my PhD, 11 years working towards this day to get my degree. And I walked across the stage and my mom was the person that got to hood me. And that feeling in that moment was happiness to me but a very different type of happiness than eating my tiramisu. So mm -hmm. there, you know, and, and you ask like parents watching their kids, or you look at like things in your life and you reflect on what have I worked at and what has happened. So there, there's sort of different levels to it. I think that we need all the different levels. They serve, they serve a time and a place and a purpose. You know, some of them move the needle forward to give us that boost to, to continue on with our day. If we're having a bad day and one of our best friends calls us and we talk for a while and, and we feel good, that 
conversation may be the spark that starts a cascade of what we call in research, like an upward spiral of positive emotion, right? It's that one thing that changes our mood to start. And so, you know, there's that piece there. There's so many layers to it and also personal meaning, right? Like what makes you happy and you find joy and contentment with could be very different than who you who are listening to our conversation right now. And so this is where happiness is very complicated because it's, it's so individual and yet so universal that paradoxical perspective of that makes it empowering in a way because we get to figure it out for ourselves. And at the same time, the other side of that coin is that we actually have to do the work to figure that out. It doesn't just happen to us. We don't just sit back in life and happiness comes upon us. I mean, it may sometimes. And when we think of sort of the total capacity for happiness, if we want to be happy, we actually have to do work to do things that make us happy. Dude, dude, and isn't it fascinating? Like we always want to be happy and you said like we need to figure it out. So I want to ask here, like you can say stupid question, but like I believe no, no stupid question, question is a stupid question. <laughs> how can I identify like what things make me happy or how can someone identify what makes them happy? This is the simplest, most difficult question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Because this is something like on a personal perspective I'm struggling with right now because I am working on a book and mm. what I'm having a hard time with is I can't write a book to tell people how to be happy because I would have to write a different book for every single person on this planet. And not only that, I would have to write a different book for different people at different periods in their life. So that is, is challenging because it's so unique. Like I said, at the same time, there are a lot of things or things that are available that are common or not necessarily universal, but a lot of people. So for example, um, a, for a lot of people, practicing gratitude makes them feel happier, but not for all. So some things work for some people and, and even uh, not for other people or for different groups. Like I do a lot of research with university students and what makes university students happy may be very different than if I was working with an elderly population in a retirement community, for yeah. example. Um, so that being said, what we do know from the science of happiness is that there are certain things that are more likely to make you happy. And part of the practice is trying on those different things and figuring it out for ourselves. Like I often find one of the most frequent questions I get asked, as soon as I tell somebody I'm a happiness researcher, they'll say, okay, Jillian, well, like, what's the one thing? What's the, the one thing that I need to do or buy or get yeah. or say in order to be happy? And I always have to respond. Like, I'm, there's no magic pill for happiness, but you, you are the pharmacist. Like it's up to each and every one of us to ask that question. And one thing I have noticed, there was a pattern um, that I started to notice in my research participants. So this is before COVID, back when we used to have in-person interaction um, in a research setting. If I was doing interviews, like one-on-one -on -one interviews, where I was just chatting with somebody or even a focus group where you have maybe six to eight or 10 people or so, and we have a group discussion. When I would ask, are you as happy as you think you possibly could be? I have not had a research participant ever say, no, you know what? I'm as happy as I possibly could be. Every single person so far in my experience has said, yes, you know what? Even if I'm happy, I think I could be happier, right? Mm -hmm. And so then my second question was, what makes you happy? And when I asked that question, one of two things was happening over and over and over again, enough for me to really start to think about what is going on here. There's a pattern. So one, the person before they even started their exhale would have an answer. My mom, my dog, my cat, my whatever. Or so like, it was like a reflexive response. Like they hadn't even, like it was before they started to even breathe, they had an answer. It was like a reflex. So there wasn't a lot of thought that went into the answer or the opposite. So it's sort of the other end of that spectrum, I guess, would be that they would have a really long pause and they'd really have to think about it. And this happened so many times, I started wondering what is going on here. And then I realized that if we're not as happy as we think we possibly could be, 
but either a, what makes us happy is a reflex. Like we haven't really put a lot of thought into it or B we really had to put a lot of thought into it. Then no wonder, because if we don't know what makes us happy, no wonder we're not as happy as we possibly could be. Right. And so I love that you asked this question because that's where the area of opportunity for each and every one of us is because we can ask that question to ourselves, and we're the only one that can know that answer. We're the only one that can start to do that. And so you may be wondering, well, how do I even start, right? It can feel very overwhelming. And so as somebody who's very data-driven and likes to not only study people and experiments, but myself, one of the activities that I think can be really beneficial to help us answer that question is to do an activity they call happy hunting. So it's really simple. All you have to do is either get a, a, a notebook or an app on your phone, notes on your phone, whatever you want, however you like to write things down or keep track of something and then make two columns, more happy and less happy. And then as you go through your day, start every activity you do, when you're done that activity, check in. Do I feel more happy or less happy? And at the end of the day, or if you wanna get a really rich data set, you could do it for a couple of days, you start to see, okay, here I have a column of things that made me more happy. And here I have a column of things that made me less happy. And let's look at that. What in my less happy column can I remove or do less of? Because sometimes happiness isn't about adding more. Sometimes it's about doing less. And yes, there may be things on there that are part of adult life, like grocery shopping or cooking or laundry or cleaning um, that we have to do. And that's just part of life. And there may be things on there that we can do less of or maybe we can get somebody to help us or we can delegate it to our kids or whatever it is. And then in the other column, the more happy, how can I do more of these things or spend more time doing those things? Because once we start to understand that, that's a good starting off point for us to then start pointing our compass in a more directed way towards happiness as opposed to just kind of stumbling through through in the dark and, and not really knowing. Amazing. But Julian, like if I if I ask a question here, like you mentioned that less happy and uh, more happy. If you are if there are things like you can do and you make yourself more happy, you think like if you are gonna do that again and again, like in a repetitive order, more repetition can make things boring and they might not be the things now like that makes you happy. You think that that might also be the case in future? So there, there is this concept. I love that you said that. You're very smart. Um, in, in psychology, we call it hedonic adaptation. And essentially what hedonic adaptation teaches us is that we are adaptive creatures as humans. We get used to what we have. We mm -hmm. essentially start to take things for granted. If you think about when you get a new car, when you get a new house, when you get a new outfit, when you get new shoes, when anything, the day that you get it, you're so excited. So say you get a new car, okay? And you're, yeah. you drive around and life is just amazing and you're so happy. And then you look at your car two months later and you have wrappers on the floor and there's dust on the, the windshield or the desk, what's it yeah. called? Uh, right, the thing at the top. I'm totally blanking on the word, but essentially we, we don't look at our car the same way two months later that we do the day that we bought it and or anything new for that matter or exciting because we adapt even lottery winners like there's research that shows that people that win the lottery they see a spike in their happiness when they win the lottery but if you follow them over you know even a six month period yeah their happiness starts to decline again because we don't sustain our happiness at that level the day that we won the lottery we adapt so part of the practice you're absolutely right is always keeping things on our toes as in terms of happiness routine is in a way it can create some boundaries but we do need to have some variation so even if if gratitude is something that makes you happy then what that means is asking different questions so one day thinking about people that you're grateful for and then the next day things that you've learned that you're grateful for and the next day body parts that you're grateful for or whatever it is but you're absolutely right one of the keys to extending the potency and the the amplification of 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 the practice is having that variety in, in in it because that's really what keeps things fresh and exciting and new and as humans we like that because we want to adapt we want to kind of keep that homeostasis sure. so 
the practice there, you're absolutely right, is trying to find ways to stay in the realm, but mix it up a little bit. Sure, sure. But again, again, new question came up in my mind. Like you met, you gave the example of car. So let's say like I bought a new car, right? After two months, and you're absolutely right. Like after two or three months, uh, my happiness like level would be a neutral. But isn't it like I'm now increasing the level? Like so, if I really want to be happy again, maybe I have to bought another new car like much more expensive than that more more costlier than that so you think like is it chasing happiness and like you achieve one thing now you are after a few minutes like you are done with it now you want to you want to have more and more and more after some time you think like chasing happiness is healthy for your mind and for your health this like, is yeah so this is a great example of this sort of materialistic or hedonic uh, wheel that you can get on right more 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 and and we see you know even people ask me sometimes does does money buy happiness right if, if i make more money does more money bring more happiness and while the data is mixed one of the things that's consistent is that we need a basic amount of money in order to survive so if, if we're concerned about how we're going to pay rent how we're going to put food on the table then absolutely money impacts our happiness, right? Because it's, it's basic human needs. Once we get past that point and then more money doesn't bring more happiness. And if you wanna spend your money in a way to maximize your happiness, buying experiences or time are the two ways to do it. So experiences being quality time with people. Maybe it's going to, an event together when it's safe to do so, or having dinner together, or taking a trip as a family, as opposed to buying a new outfit for your son or daughter for, for their birthday, for example, it, might, it would be better in terms of happiness to go for a family trip. Um, and then also time. So if, if you are able to, uh, for example, if you don't like cleaning your house and you're able to hire someone to do that, spending that money to give you back the time that you would have spent buying or cleaning your house, can help to boost your happiness. At the same time, um, part of it too is that more money doesn't bring more happiness because you're sort of in that cycle of, you know, I have one mansion, now I need two mansions more because money. the guy down the road has two. Yeah. So when we get into a position where we're, we're feeling like we're trying to, to keep up with our neighbors or trying to buy more, the question becomes why? And what is it that I'm actually chasing? Because it's it's not having, the cottage and the boat and the, that's that's not it it's what is asking those those honest real raw question of why do i want that yeah. right is it that i want to fit in is it that i want to feel accepted is it that i want people to think i'm successful is it that i whatever the reason may be so when we can start to unpack that often we don't really believe that that's what brings us happiness but we can we can deceive ourselves and the other piece of this is marketing and advertising does not do us any help in this, right? Because we watch any commercial or advertisement often, what do you see? You see that if I buy this, I'll be happy, or right? Yeah. Like you see these happy, lovely people doing on a vacation or on a whatever. So that's where I think part of the practice with happiness is starting to be intentional about it. Mm -hmm. And starting to be deliberate about A, what we're doing and B, why it is that we're doing what we're doing because when we start to get real and honest with ourselves that's where the richness of our self-exploration our self-knowledge our our understanding of happiness our experience of happiness is where we can incorporate that and start to really shape our life in a meaningful way that brings true happiness or deep satisfaction and meaning and purpose as opposed to the the fleeting dopamine hit of of a new a new car or a new whatever sort of sort of Jillian. Jillian, quick question what are some of the practices are you doing or what are the some of the exercises or practices we can do to be aware of more things like which can make us happy um, bring us more happiness like you mentioned already about gratitude but are there any some else th like other things you are also doing that yes yes um yeah. so on the gratitude thing i will say this is a very popular um 
strategy recently, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and if you are practicing gratitude, something that's not talked about as, as frequently that I think is important to know is that when we think about gratitude, a couple things to really maximize the potency of your gratitude practice is getting specific. So instead of saying, you know, I'm grateful for the warm weather today. It's getting detailed. I, I'm grateful for how the sun felt on my skin when I went for a walk and the smell of spring in the air or whatever, like getting really descriptive and involving as many of your senses as you possibly can. Um, so, you know, if you're grateful for baking cookies today, if you think about the smell of the cookies, how the cookies tasted when they were warm and gooey coming out of the oven. Um, also, to your point earlier, another great way is to mix it up. So asking different questions about what you're grateful for. So not the same gratitude question every single mm. day. Um, and then also sometimes it can be, you can almost forget because gratitude doesn't take a lot of time. It could be done anywhere, right? So creating a habit out of it. So whether it be first thing in the morning or before you go to bed or as a family around the breakfast, lunch, or dinner table, whatever meal you have, if you have a meal as a family, going around and sharing something you're grateful for. Um, and then in a, like a good, better, best, writing it down is more potent. It's still good to think about what you're grateful for, but in a best case scenario, you're writing it down, whether that be typing it out electronically or taking an actual pen to paper. So that's, that's one that commonly comes up and is highly correlated. Another one that has been really powerful for me lately, um, I think especially because there's so much fear and anxiety in our world right now. And a lot of times anxiety lives in the past or, or more often in the future, right? Mm -hmm. We're scared of what's going to happen. And then we get into these spirals where one fear becomes the world is ending very quickly. And an activity, a practice to sort of counter that or to stop that is to bring us back into the present moment right and so yeah there's this practice in, in research we call it savoring um but essentially it's when we stop to smell the roses when we stop in the present moment and appreciate what is around us so that could be as simple as in the morning when you wake up instead of drinking your coffee while you're doing a bunch of things you stop for five minutes and you drink your coffee and you feel what the warm mug feels like in your hands and you smell what the coffee or tea or whatever you like to have in the morning smells like and you sip it slowly that practice it brings us into the present moment and anxiety doesn't live there and and depression doesn't live there because we're so present with what we're appreciating and focusing in that moment so that is something that personally for me stops those spirals and brings me back into the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I went out for, for a walk before we had our mm -hmm. call today and it's uh, it's a beautiful, I'm downtown Toronto, beautiful day. And I saw so many people out with smiles on their face. Um, and I think that there's a couple of reasons. One, getting outside, yeah. very, very good. And then when we can get out and we can walk around and move around, then also great. And then if we can, when it's safe to do so, go out for a walk with somebody else, um, social connection is huge. Um, especially I think in a world where we've had to be physically distant for over a year, um, research out of Harvard actually found that the number one predictor of both our long-term health and our happiness is social connection. Mm -hmm. So above how much money we make above our, our age, above where we work, above where we live, the number one thing is, is having, you know, a couple yeah. friends, having that human connection and that connection goes beyond hey how are you i'm fine how are you good it's, it's having that if i'm having a bad day i can call somebody and if somebody's having a bad day they can call me and um you know research shows that loneliness is as bad for our health as alcoholism smoking or obesity so this is something and one thing i've been asked a lot lately is what's the difference between virtual versus in person you know mm -hmm. if we were in person in a room recording this podcast versus here we are on zoom what's the difference in connection and i and i think like for me i i naturally like intuitively realize if you're having a good conversation with somebody you're having a good conversation it doesn't matter if they're in front of you or if they're on a screen you're feeling connection and research has actually found that electronic like virtual conversations can be about 80 percent as effective as in person so still a very meaningful piece so i think it's important as a reminder that we don't necessarily have to be close in order to feel close and it's such an important thing because it's so easy when we get busy 
to put taking time to talk to a friend off on our list for something more seemingly urgent. And I think it's an important reminder for all of us to continually remind ourselves that social connection is, is, is critical. It is essential in terms of, of us showing up and living our best life. Wow, like actually this really surprised me. You mentioned that social connection is number one factor. But yeah. tell me about it, like in the recent past two years, like past year, like when we are still in COVID situation, mm-hmm. did you see any change in perspective of how people are now catching, like how people are now dealing with the happiness or in their behavior? Mm-hmm. Did you see any perspective? Because we uh, believe like this is true right we are not having that much social connection nowadays because of covid we can't meet someone we can't have a dinner we can't go to restaurants there's so many things we are now uh, like i'm so i so really want to now go to cinema and watch a movie but we can't do it did you mm-hmm. see that like anything changing our mind any perspective like is there any difference you saw nowadays yeah. You know, so it's actually interesting. I was just having this conversation. So a lot before COVID, I used to do a lot of in-person lectures or keynotes or speaking. And yeah. the past year and a half, I've gotten really good at talking to my computer, <laughs> a lot of virtual <laughs> events, live learning experiences, webinars, master classes, that type of thing. And one of the things I work with a lot of, of companies. And so before our actual event, I'll get on a call with, with the organizers or HR or whoever is organizing the event and, and we'll just have a conversation. They'll say, you know, tell me about your group. What are some of your, your challenges, their challenges right now? What are you struggling with? What, what's the event about? And when, when COVID first hit, a lot of the things that I was hearing over and over again from a variety of different industries were, we don't know how to cope with fear and anxiety. How do we deal with uncertainty? How do we deal with change? How do we work from home? What happens when what I know is not what I am doing right now? And then, you know, about six months or so into the pandemic, things started to shift into more, how do we be resilient? What what do we do when we're going through difficult times? How do I focus on what I can control? How do I function in a world where there's a lot of uncertainty? And now, you know, over a year into, post, you know, the beginning of COVID, the conversation I'm noticing now is very much about what do you do when you're feeling burnt out? Cause we've been, we've been grinding it out for yeah. over a year. Yeah. Right. So how do we deal with burnout? How do we deal with zoom fatigue? How do I deal with not wanting to be on my screen all the time? My energy is low. I'm tired. I'm, I'm sick of this. I like that type of conversation. So I think as a, as a collective, we've been riding the tide and the waters of, of the pandemic. And I mean, we're all experiencing it very differently and yet sort of patterns that I'm noticing are, are that type of type of thing where we're now we're tired and we're burnt out. And so that's, that's where the conversation is right now. I'm finding. In, 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 you can actually do in that. Like we are really tired of this now COVID situation really want to go back into the normal, but all right. Uh, one of the last questions, and this I put it in the last because I feel this is very important question is, is there any difference between the genuine happiness? Now, I'm not sure about the terms I'm just making up. Mm-hmm. So I will elaborate it. Like, is there any difference between genuine happiness or happiness we create? Like, what I mean by genuine happiness is that you're just happy because of things happen in the environment. Maybe you're happy because you can see stars in the sky or maybe you're just happy because you saw something amazingly amazingly good in front of you. Compared to that, uh, you are like, let's say I'm having a bad day. I want to do something to lighten up my mood. So now I can do actions, take actions. Maybe I can watch some YouTube videos or I can edit my videos because I, I, I love editing my videos. Is the happiness in both situations are the same? Like, uh, are the both happiness are sending same signals to my mind? Or do you think like, no, this is another perspective here? Yeah. Oh, this is a great question. You're so insightful. Um, it's different paths to a similar place, but not necessarily the same place. Um, so it's kind of like, imagine if you took the gardener 
um, into Toronto or you take the DVP. If, if you're not from Toronto, these are two kind of major highways that go into downtown Toronto, right? So yeah. you can take one or the other. They get you to the same place. They might One might take you to King Street. You might end up at Queen Street. So we're in the same realm. Um, but different paths for different things. And if I wanted to go to, you know, my favorite restaurant, it's on Queen Street, then I want to take this path. And if my goal is to go to my favorite Pilates studio, back when we could go to Pilates studios, then that's a different thing. So I think where, where the kind of the secret sauce is, is asking ourselves, what are our goals? What do we want to feel and how do I create that? And, you know, for you, you know, you, you said editing your videos, right? And so what is it about that that you love? Is it the creative pursuit? Is it the the feeling of satisfaction you get when you produce something that you're proud of? Mm -hmm. Is it the amount of time and skill development and the mastery that comes from that? Is it your perseverance from having to navigate how difficult it is to learn how to edit videos? <laughs> I know like basic, basic video editing, so respect to anybody that does it. So what is it? And what's what's my goal? And then how do I achieve that? Um, you know, or or whether it be every single thing that we do, I think that the question becomes, are we doing it intentionally? And am I clear on what my outcome wants to be? Because so often a lot of us do things because we wanna be happy, but we don't realize that that's the goal. You know, why do we wanna buy the latest purse or pants or whatever, or iPhone? Is it because I really care how many pixels my new iPhone has? Or is it because I want to tell my friend, hey, look, I got the new iPhone, right? So there's layers to it. And when we can get honest with ourselves, you know, I think when we do, we realize that a lot of our behaviors, whether it's conscious or subconscious, is driven by our desire to be happy. And then the question becomes, what do I believe is what makes me happy, right? Do I think that having the new iPhone is going to make me feel accepted? right? That might be at the root of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's not actually the iPhone that's bringing me happiness. It's the feeling that I get because I feel like I'm part of something, right? And so that's where the work is, is really getting honest and digging deep and keep asking why, 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 until we get to the root of the question, because that's, that's where the magic is. And once we start to do that, we start to realize how much of what we do is motivated by that desire, whether we realize it or not at the beginning. Oh my God. Like, is do like so many like i won't say like i i know people like so many th uh, people like buy things because they wanted to accept by their friends mm -hmm. so that leads me to another question and i didn't plan this one <laughs> mm -hmm. but how much environment impacts your happiness you like is there any research out there like that can say like in, in your in, in your happiness this much impacted by environment this much impacted by your childhood memories your habits or this much impacted by like just the surroundings like how much is the environment controls your happiness mm. this is a, this is an evolving um topic in the field of happiness research so um this this one one of the leading happiness researchers her name is dr sonia lebomirsky she's from California. She wrote a book a couple years ago called The How of Happiness. And the front of the book, it's on my shelf. I can't reach it because I'm mic'd in, but at the front of the book has a piece, a pie, and there's a hunk of the pie missing about 40%. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of the book, she has done some research and has some data and said about 50% of our happiness is genetic. About 10% is environment. Mm -hmm. And about 40% is what's up to us. So our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And so that 40% is where I focus my research on. Now, are these numbers an oversimplification? Yeah, for sure they are. Because we can't tease things out to such a perfect thing. Data is, is only data. Um, and there's, there's confounding variables. Because say, for example, your environment and your thoughts aren't necessarily separate things, right? If we're in a beautiful place, our thoughts may be better. And if we're stuck at home and can't go anywhere, then that might, so there's crossover and overlap and things are interrelated. So those numbers are to my best, um, based on my, what I've read, the best available opinion that I can form is that this gives us a ballpark. You mm -hmm. know, it, it kind of gets us in the realm. Um, I don't get caught in the weeds of, is it is it 10%, is it 20%, is 11%. Yeah. What, what I take away from it is that genetics play a role 
in our happiness. Absolutely. Um, and our environment plays a role. And I think we can all intuitively understand that, especially this past year when we've been very restricted mm. in terms of our environments, right? We understand how that affects us. And then there's this third piece, right? Our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And all three of them contribute. Um, and we think about what's amenable to change. What can I do? What can I control? Because that's a really big piece of this too, is that, there, so in research, we, this, we have this term called autonomy, which is this idea that our thoughts are self-chosen and self-endorsed. So essentially what this means is that we choose to give more of our attention to what we can control as opposed to what we can't. That's not to say we can control everything going on because we obviously can't, yeah. but what we can control is how much time we think, spend thinking about these things. Am I spending my day ruminating on the fact that I can't go see my parents in London? Or am I focusing on the fact that I can go out for a walk this afternoon? So it's about giving our attention to the areas where we have the, the most uh, control. So we call it autonomy. And autonomy is more of a predictor of our happiness. Popular we are, how good looking we are, or how good our sex life is. Above all four of those factors, autonomy ranks higher. And so I think this is something that's important to know is that, you know, we can get caught in the weeds of genetics, environment, whatever, but really asking ourselves, where do I have control and how can I use that piece to make meaningful change? And, and when I give my attention there, not only do I see the most possibility for room to change or to shift or to grow or to build, but I also that's where I can actually do something, right? I can't control my genetics and uh, I can't control what I'm thinking about today and what I focus on. And so that's where my mind always, I try to train my brain to go there. I mean, like, this is so amazing. Like I really didn't expect like, like there was like any science, any numbers behind like 50% genetics, 10% environment. Like, thank you so much for sharing that, Jillian. Jillian, my last question and actually, from today this interview i'm planning to like ask this question to every guest who i'm, mm. I'm gonna bring so you're really one of the first oh <laughs> so this is a, like maybe hard question so recently i had an interview like my good friend akeem haynes is he is a motivation speaker and he is also represented like canada two times on olympics and also brought an olympic medal back home wow. So he has written this book, Love, Life and Legacy. We were talking about legacy, like what legacy he want to leave behind. So that makes me wonder, like, this is a good thing. And very important question I can ask is, Gillian, what legacy you want to leave behind? And what are type of actions or what work you are doing now or planning to do in future to build up that legacy? <laughs> Oh, now that's a powerful question. Oh, oh. I, I think, um, I read this book recently by Adam Grant called Think Again. And the premise of the book is about learning to think like a scientist. And when I first read this book, this is the only book in my entire life I've listened to on Audible and then bought the hard copy. I was so enamored with the book. And I started to ask myself, well, why is that? And what I realized was that I value thinking. I value asking questions. I value learning. I value knowledge and I value the progression of knowledge. Yeah. And what I even, so when I was at, um, at the Western where I did all my degrees, which is in London, Ontario, Canada, um, I taught in the faculty of health science there for four years. And my favorite course that I taught was a fourth year course that I actually got to help create because it was a brand new course called health and social media. And one of, when I started designing this course, I took some time to reflect on Jillian, when you were in fourth year undergrad, what skills do you wish you had that you didn't learn? Mm -hmm. Or what did you wish you knew then? Or what do you wish was taught to you? And what I realized was that my entire life up until that point, I was very good at preparing for tests, for learning and regurgitating, for studying to answer a multiple choice question. It was recall. It wasn't actual deep learning. There was no critical thinking. There was no problem solving. There was no asking questions. And I, I really realized that 
I am drawn to science because I love to ask questions and I love to think critically and I love to figure out answers. And so when I designed that course, I put in so much group work, discussion, dialogue to try to help to cultivate that skill within my students because I was never taught that. And I look to today, a lot of the work that I do is sharing research, research that I personally have conducted or research that I have read. But I don't just sit here and say, go practice gratitude. Yeah. I say, like we said today, we have to figure it out for ourselves. This idea of thinking critically, of learning, this, this quest for an ongoing knowledge and for having to create our own thoughts, think for ourselves, formulate our own ideas, be sovereign beings of our own thinking. That is what is so important to me. And every student that I have, every group that I talk to, my, my intention is to help people form their own thoughts. I don't want to sit here and tell you this is what you need to do. Um, and so my legacy is that I, I want to be able to, I have a skill of being able to read and understand and conduct research. And part of that skill then becomes, how do you give people the best available research, but in a way where it's useful and meaningful for them? And the only way to do that on a very deep, meaningful way, in my opinion, is to engage people in the learning process. It's like, why do we love TED Talks so much? Because they take you on a learning journey and you arrive at the conclusion together. And so I hope that my legacy is that I contribute um, through my own work, through my own research, through my own speaking and, and conversations like this to spark people to have the best available research. It's an ongoing process. It's an iterative process. There's no destination, just like happiness. What we know could be proved wrong tomorrow in the data. And that's part of the beauty of it. And I love that. And so to be able to share the learning journey and to help people help themselves, that, that I hope is my legacy. So I've never thought of the question in that answer, but I love that question. So thank you for asking that. You're welcome. Like, sorry about like to putting you on the spot, but no, it's, 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 so it's a great question. Thank you. It's so powerful. Like things you mentioned that you really want to help people to create their own thoughts. Like this is just a small statement, but such a powerful statement. Like, thank you so much for sharing that. Gillian. Mm. So thank you so much for, again, like for coming on the show. I, could you like share if there's any listeners out there, like really want to connect with you, what's the best way to reach out to you on the internet? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So my website is a great hub, um, for all of my things. So my website is my name, jillianmandich.com and my name is Jillian with a G. Uh, so it's G I L L I A N M A N D I C H.com. My social media handle is my name at Jillian Mandich. And those are, those are both great places to find out what I'm up to. Um, my social, I share a lot of media clips. I do a ton of media. So those clips are all there. Um, my website is great. If you have questions, there's a contact page there. Um, so that's, that's really a great place to find me. Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much, Jillian. Again, like, thanks so much for com coming to the show. I really appreciate for you like giving to time to us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking such deep, insightful, thoughtful questions and, and for the work that you're doing and for sharing your gift with the world. So I, I appreciate you and uh, having me on today as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. You too.